Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Mean O'Line Media presents Business of the Beat. Hi, I'm Kendra Bracken Ferguson, and I am a founder, brand builder, entrepreneur, and believe in the mantra, Carpe Diem. I created this podcast, Business of the Beat, through my own experience as a beauty executive to talk about, tell stories, and highlight the business of beauty through conversations with beauty and wellness entrepreneurs, intrapreneurs, helping to diversify the industry. This week on Business of the Beat. Machine learning has really been democratized over the past decade. It's a really widely available and powerful tool that really anybody can use. You know, we're not using these really complex algorithms. No, I think the power is in the data and how you build the algorithms around your data and how you take the application and apply that algorithm to the application. I think that's where the innovation comes in. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Kendra Bracken Ferguson, and welcome to Business of the Beat. Today's guest is Afueco Igbenedian, co-founder and CTO of Parfait. But before we get started, don't forget to follow, rate, and subscribe to Business of the Beat on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You don't want to miss an episode, and we love to hear from you. All right, everyone. Afueco was approached by her sister, Iso, who was on the podcast last week, about the difficulties of buying a wig that makes people look and feel great. They were motivated to find an easier way that involved artificial intelligence and machine learning. Given Afueco's background in machine learning and computer vision, she knew it was possible to solve the problems that Black women go through with their hair. Afueco graduated from Stanford with a degree in computer science and a master's in electrical engineering. She is currently completing her PhD program at MIT. In her spare time, which I can't imagine she has much, you can catch her snacking on some cotton candy, watching Will of Time on Amazon Prime, or catching up on all the latest reality TV. Afueco, welcome to Business of the Beat. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It is such a treat. It's like I have all of the co-founders of Parfait coming in this special series. We've never had three co-founders with such amazing personalities creating something so game-changing on the show before. So this is like history. It's fun. And I'm just so happy that you're taking the time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kendra, for having us on. You know, you've been such a support to us and we really love these discussions. So, so excited to chat. All right. Well, well, let's get into it. And I'm just honored to be able to be in community with you guys. I mean, when I think about you and your background and literally machine learning, computer vision, AI, PhD at MIT, like it's so fascinating because there's so many conversations about girls and women and STEM and technology. So take us back 
How did you get excited about technology? Was it always something you wanted to do? Tell us the whole story of how you got here. Yeah. So um, I guess I'll just start at the beginning. So I, you know, we'll go back to sixth grade. Okay. I think that um, I grew up with um, immigrant parents and they're from Nigeria. And so, um, you know, heavy focus on education. Um, Like I was scared to get B's in high school because I thought I would get in trouble seeing, you know, my older siblings when they got B's, what would happen. I was like, okay, I have to do so well in school. So in sixth grade, you know, I had sisters who were um, four years older than me, two years older than me. So they were going through that whole college process themselves. And there was this book about colleges. And so um, I just opened the book about colleges and was scrolling through it. And it said, Stanford University, if you go there, it's a big deal. And I was like, okay, I want to be a big deal. (laughs) And this is like when I was 11 years old. So um, I really set my sights on going to Stanford. Like everything I did was, you know, preparing myself for that college experience. So I was really into chemistry and math. And so I was doing all those AP classes, Um, finally got into Stanford when I was 17. And um, you know, from there, I actually thought I was going to be a chemistry or chemical engineering major. Um, our parents made it very clear that there are a few acceptable careers, you know, being a lawyer, being a doctor, yes. uh, one of those two really. And so um, I was like, okay, if I do chemical engineering, I can still be a doctor if I, you know, choose to. I can still go to medical school because I have that chemistry background. So um, I was doing all of those classes, but I really enjoyed engineering, math, physics, science, all of that stuff. And so um, my spring semester, I remember somebody telling me about computer science. And I had a little bit of experience with the computer science from a summer program, but I vowed to never do it again because I thought it was so hard and so confusing. But really, I just didn't realize that I wasn't being taught very well. And so it was hard for me to pick it up because I'm someone who definitely learns from instructors and educators. And so um, I reluctantly took this class and I was also taking an organic chemistry class at the same time. And um, I ended up failing that organic chemistry class and getting an A plus in the computer science class. So I was like, hmm, maybe this is kind of like the right direction for me. (laughs) So I slowly switched over my major to computer science. And that was kind of like difficult for me to explain to my parents. Um, You know, going to Stanford, you're in Silicon Valley. There's Google, IBM, all these really big companies that are so, you know, impressive and like the dream job for a lot of developers. And obviously they pay really well. So um, it took a while for them to kind of catch on. But then they're like, okay, yeah, she's, she's doing something serious. She's doing something real. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of how I got into computer science. But where I am now, um, during that time, I did a bunch of internships. Uh, my first internship at a big tech company was at IBM. I was in Oregon. It was like my first, you know, my own apartment. And it was like, it was kind of like just like a really wonderful experience. But um, dealing with like the job, I was doing really hardcore systems programming. We built a file server and um, we actually got hacked by some of our um, in- internship advisors. It was kind of funny. But um, after that, I didn't really want to do that kind of work. I don't know if it was like, the trauma of being embarrassed at our final presentation or just, you know, not really vibing with, you know, the application space. And so I tried. Wait, did they do that on purpose? Did they hack you on purpose? Yes, it was a joke. (laughs) It was like, let's see how you handle this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I think they were trying to teach us a lesson because um, we didn't have any security on the server we built. And they're like, oh, they don't have security. Let's let's just hack this and say like David and Bob were here, whoever the the two people were. And we're just like, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. (laughs) But (laughs) that was a really, really interesting and funny experience. Um, But yeah, I learned I didn't really like systems from that internship. So uh, yeah, but I was also focused a lot on AI. And so um, my first couple of like kind of hardcore classes past the, you know, intro classes was computer vision. And so I ended up working at Google for a couple of internships. And my first internship was about ads. I 
built this kind of, you know, big data processing framework to detect errors in hotel ads, right? And so it was really cool, cool experience. I learned how to work with all these big computing clusters and all that, but I didn't really enjoy the work. You know, I think it felt a little bit soul sucking, like all the work I'm doing is for ads. And so I, I really tried to get more impactful projects. Um, I did a, a large scale robotic testing project where we basically t- uh program this large robot to um, automatically test a bunch of smartphones. So you could kind of see like keyboard latency and different things so they could do across like all their products. Um, I worked on VR. I worked on the Google Cardboard project where we tried to create an application where you could kind of just like use the world around you to walk through a VR environment and track yourself. So that that was cool. But, um, you know, not as we didn't have as many hardware, you know, availabilities in that project. So it was kind of difficult to make something really impactful. So I decided to go to another internship where um, I worked on um, a actual diabetes patch. And so I was working on firmware and hardware for that. So I got a really a lot of hardcore experience. I was soldering all the time. I was, you know, really building out circuits. And so, you know, that was cool, but it was still, it didn't feel like I was doing the work that was the most impactful to me. And that was, you know, going to like change the world. Cause I was really in this place at Stanford where like, you can change the world with the tech that you're building. And so I wanted to feel that I was doing that. And so I was like, okay, I don't really know what I want to do. Let me go to the master's. And I did the master's at Stanford, did an electrical engineering. And, you know, during that time I was working for Google and all those things, but decided like, I don't really want to go into the job market. Let me try and do this PhD. And so I applied to the PhD. I applied to a bunch of schools in California, but I also applied to MIT. And I don't know how God works, but I got rejected to every, almost every school in California except one and I got accepted to MIT. So I was choosing between uh, California, Southern California school and um, MIT. And I was like dead set on staying in California. And my parents were like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> you can't get into MIT and say no. And so I was like, okay, let me, let me go to the visit days. Let me try things out. And I went there and it was kind of just like a whirlwind, you know, seeing what people do with doctoral degrees. Like it's, it's not just you're sitting in the lab and coding around. Like people are doing such impactful work. And so, yeah, so now I'm, I chose MIT. I'm a PhD candidate here and I focus on um, drones, computer vision for drones. And so we focus on things on how you can incorporate the human into the experience. So um, machine learning algorithms that focus on the human and interaction and collaboration with robots for really, you know, high impact applications. We're really interested in search and rescue and things that really are you know, disaster relief, the things that are, are going to impact people and need to be able to communicate with people in the scenarios. And so all the algorithms that I, you know, work on at MIT are really focused on that lens, but it's also quite parallel to what we do at Parfait, We're trying to build, you know, machine learning algorithms that see people, that work with people to help build amazing products and experiences. Wow. I, I am just grinning ear to ear. I, I cannot wait for my daughter to sit with you and for you to be like, here's the way of the world. Here's how technology can make a difference. And here's why it's important. I mean, there's so many pieces to this story, right? And the fact that in sixth grade, you were looking at this book and said, oh my gosh, I want to be a big deal. And you are a big deal. And when I think about you as a Black woman, all of these boundaries and things that you're breaking, it is phenomenal. And that you're able to think about technology in such a different way. Like, we'll talk more about Parfait because I think that you've been able to transition in a way that other people have not. And I say that because you talk about IBM, you talk about Google, you talk about 
taking that path. It's what you were supposed to do. And you were learning and you were doing these things. But to be able to then say, I want to take all of this knowledge and this technology, and I want to impart machine learning in a way that's going to change the world in a way that relates to me and in a way that relates to my community and my lived experience, not many people get that opportunity to weave the two in such a dynamic way. And I saw a picture of you where you were bald and you were saying like, oh my goodness, I'm getting ready to have this, this journey. And so it's so deeply personal, but it's also impacting the future of how we think about not just beauty, but the overall industry. I mean, you're talking about robots. So when you think about this notion, I've now made it. I'm a PhD candidate at MIT. I'm getting to be at the center of the most forward-thinking technology that exists. How did you then translate that into the work that you're doing at Parfait? Yeah, you know, I think the biggest thing that we learn here is how to really solve problems with deep technology. And so, you know, it was pretty simple when when the problem is posed, the solution becomes really clear. And so, you know, I don't know if we got into this with um, ESO, but Parfait really started with ESO calling me at Afrotech saying, hey, I just had the worst salon experience. Can you make algorithms for this? And I was like, yeah, we can make algorithms for anything. And so, you know, it was a lot of trial and error. You know, we collected data. We talked to a lot of people. We did a lot of research into what the best solution to the problems would be and just tried out some algorithms. And I think it's it seems like machine learning is this like, all-knowing, amorphous, difficult thing to access. But machine learning has really been democratized over the past decade. It's a really widely available and powerful tool that really anybody can use. You know, we're not using these really complex algorithms. No, I think the power is in the data and how you build the algorithms around your data and how you take the application and apply that algorithm to the application. I think that's where the innovation comes in. And so, you know, I, I think it's it's so interesting people ask you this question because if you look at the wig and hair industry, the beauty industry for Black women in general, we're in the stone ages. You know, there is such little technology. We're still burning our foreheads with hot combs on the stove. Like if you really want to get that power, you know, like we are really doing things the old school way because that is the best way. But then there's a lot of these problems that come into it that is just so time consuming and it's difficult if you don't have the skill and it's not accessible. And shockingly, well, or not shockingly, robotics and machine learning can be a really powerful tool to add that accessibility. So I really think that we were meant to do this. I, I really think that we were put in the right place at the right time with the right technology, and we just built something and it worked. And we're going to continue to build that, continue to innovate and continue to use machine learning to solve these problems that are really near and dear to the experiences of Black women. Well, and it's so interesting that you say that because when you think about the fact that Black women lead in technology, lead in innovation, lead in social media, lead in consumerism, lead in spending, especially in our category, but yet I had not thought about the fact that literally in this year, my stylist has got the hot comb on the stove and we are still, I felt like being with my great grandmother where she's like pulling and yanking. And so you're right. And that's because things worked. And so now to have this ability to say, how do we use the data, the power in the data, and how does that inform how we can change an entire industry? And I think that it's really fascinating when you say we were meant to do this because you and your co-founders have such unique skill sets and they're so interconnected for what you're doing. 
And so when you think about your approach to this, um, because yes, Iso shared calling you and being like, oh my goodness, we need an algorithm. And so your side of it, because this is what you do day in and day out. This is what you love. Like, how did you immediately think about how do we solve for this? Where do I even start in using the technology for something that feels so at the surface very much a consumer-based situation that is now going to come from technology B2B and robotics and solutions we didn't even think the two could go together. So what was that like for you to dive in? Yeah, I mean, it was honestly really fun. I think that I've never really had projects that are so dear to me. I, I wasn't really one to be able to use myself as data for my, my algorithms. You know, I was always, you know, all the applications that I've built, computer vision and classification algorithms, there's data sets online and, you know, we're classifying dogs and cats and we're, you know, determining how far the car is from us. And like, those are very powerful things. Those are very important things and technologies that make billions of dollars and really change the world. But, you know, when I was posed with this problem, it was like, you know, we, we've never had algorithms like this. I know that there are some companies who are using computer vision to custom size, you know, nails and um, there's that eyelash robot and like there's a lot of really cool things coming in the pipeline. And so I think, you know, it was really the problem being defined and um, going inward to see like what is the problem when I wear a wig? You know, we always knew that like the whole process of building a wig is like you sometimes even sew it yourself. You have to glue it on. You have to put your makeup on it. There's all these really annoying things. And, you you know, then when I looked at kind of the high end industry, you know, what do celebrities do? What do the celebrity stylists do? They're doing, you know, a lot of um, things that the average consumer isn't doing. They're tinting their lace. They're, um, you know, getting raw bundles and, and closures and, and building wigs for the consumer for their custom measurements. And so we took a lot of that expert knowledge and said, what are the simplest things that we can predict that allow us to automatically build this way? And so that was pretty simple, the skin tone, like what should that lace look like with your skin tone? And the next thing was, how should it fit? And so we developed two algorithms for that skin tone and that fit. And um, quite frankly, a lot of the initial algorithms were tested on myself, my family, my siblings, my friends, you know, really collecting data from the people that were around us um, to develop this algorithm and actually see if we can build wigs. And in the very beginning, you we were also, you know, um, building the wigs ourselves. You know, we were in my kitchen bleaching knots and like trying out before we really got a salon space and, you know, just trying out, can we actually go from these algorithmic me measurements to the actual product? And so it was a lot of trial and error. We were really, you know, in the kitchen, cooking, in the gym, shooting, like doing that the entire time, you Love know, that. trying to build out these algorithms. And so like, I think that's the biggest thing that we should take away from this whole machine learning craze, right? You can build robotics and machine learning for absolutely anything, but it's still going to take work. You still have to understand the problem deeply. You still have to experiment with what the solution is going to be. And you still have to do that trial and error with a physical product, with the actual creation from these machine learning algorithms. And I think that's what a lot of us don't think about. You know, ChatGPT is so powerful. It's this new craze and everybody's kind of like obsessed with it because of, you know, the conversational capabilities of it, right? But ChatGPT 
you know, how do we extend that past, you know, the internet? How do we send this past the metaverse? Like physical products can also benefit from AI. And I think that's really a difficult thing to do because of the amount of work that you actually have to do with those physical products. And so I'm honestly just excited to see how AI progresses in the next few years and how we apply that to our real lives rather than just this kind of social media, internet kind of AI availability that we see today. Well, and there is such an interesting application. I love the quote on your website that says, I'm inspired by the intersection of radical technology and real world needs. And it's really true because you can spend so much time thinking about technology, thinking about data, talking about chat, GPT, and AI, but what's the impact of my everyday life? How am I solving real world problems that improve my life, make it better, make it more efficient? and help me to actually show up in a different way. And I think that that's the beauty of this. And, and even you being your own data set, you know, very seldom, and it's starting to change as we have these conversations, but there's so much happening in beauty, especially in color cosmetics and skincare, where things aren't even being tested on our skin color or darker skin tones. And so when you think about the fact that you have a product that is universally for everyone, but that you are able to be the data set, your family, and start with us and start at the core of a real need personally. I think for me, that's what I love about founders. That's what I love about being able to be a founder when we can take our expertise and we can merge it with what we need and we can create something. And so when you think about the building blocks of which the brand exists, technology, AI, there's so many opportunities. How do you see bringing technology in either enhancing what you're doing on the WIC front, expanding what you're doing? Because the technology is so much more than one product. Yeah, um, truly, I think it comes down to community. And I know that that's, it might not sound like that's you know the answer we're going to, but I really feel like it comes down to community. I like to define community as um, a group of people with shared struggles, shared problems, and you know, trying to seek those solutions together. And I think that's where we're headed. Parfait is is about, you know, personal experiences. It's about your personal view of yourself and feeling beautiful in everything that you do. And, you know, starting off with hair, something that is so ingrained in the lived experiences of Black women, it definitely brings that community aspect backed up. And so, I really see the future of Parfait, the future of AI, is solving these problems in our community that can benefit from AI. You know, it doesn't just have to be related to vanity. You know, there are so many medical applications. There are so many real life applications that we can apply this AI to. And so I really see Parfait going in the area of, you know, listening to our consumers and building out products that they want and building up more algorithms, more robotics, more technology for those problems. And, you know, one really great example is just when we post something on Parfait's website or when we post something on Instagram and Simone posts something, right? We get a lot of comments saying, oh my gosh, do you have a wig grip? Do you have this? Do you have that? Those kinds of, you know, comments from people, that's what drives our algorithms. That's what drives our product selection. I think at the very beginning, we were like, let's build these robots. Let's build these things so that we can, you know, eliminate warehouses overseas. And, you know, and, and those things can come. 
But that was not the immediate problem that was to be solved. And so I think Parfait being rooted in community, being rooted in seeing everybody for who they are, and honestly, the diversity of the Black community, that really, you know, shows that when you build for the margins, you're truly building for everyone. That is, I think, where we're going with the technology in Parfait. It's interesting because when we think about our consumers and our customers, our ability to create a trusted community where they feel like they can be heard and that you want to listen and they start to see the fruits of those conversations. Like to your point, that's the true impact of what community means. How can we all be aligned, marching towards something together, whether in struggle, whether in harmony, but being able to say, I'm with a connected group of people who has a shared value where we can make change. And I love this notion of how respectful you are to them, listening and saying, oh my goodness, a wig grip, I can do that. I have the technology. And then saying there's so many ways that we can expand. And I like how you talk about the universality of it, but also how you talk about being a Black woman. And I think that when we think about technology, we'd be remiss to say that you're not in an easy field for Black women. You're not in an easy from Stanford to MIT you're not in a place where Black women have traditionally been able to create and have a voice and to stand tall in what they believe and even use that to create something that some people wouldn't even understand. So how has that, in terms of being a Black woman, being in this field, how has it opened new doors for you? What are some of the challenges you've had to overcome? And how has that kind of helped you guide really the next generation because you're showing all of us that there's a different way. Yeah. Oh, that's such that's such a deep question because I think that there, you know, there's a part of me that recognizes the privilege I have, even though I am in a marginalized group and a double marginalized group, you know. Um, I grew up in Palm Springs. I went to Stanford undergrad. I am now an MIT graduate student. And I think that, you know, trying to move past feeling all this immense privilege and seeing like the reality of what these spaces are is really has been really difficult for me. I'm not even going to lie. I think that in my first few years at Stanford, I felt like an outcast. I didn't really feel like I belonged really to any community. I, obviously, the Black community is large, vibrant, and present at Stanford, but I was a computer scientist. So you have to understand that there's one other person that was that looked like me in all of my classes, and we became best friends. We did everything together. And I think that you know it becomes really difficult to feel like you're on this journey alone. I think that was probably the biggest challenge of you know going through computer science. There's so many times where I wanted to quit. I didn't have support. I couldn't ask my parents for help. I couldn't ask really many of my friends for help because they weren't in the same positions that I am. So I think that that is really the hardest part of all of this is just knowing that you have to do the work, you have to push yourself forward, and you have to be the one to tell yourself, I can still do this. Because you know, in the very beginning of my MIT career, I bounced around research labs. I think um, if you're not familiar with the PhD program, um, you typically join a lab and it's kind of like a group of people who are all focused on the same topic and you kind of do research and collaboration together. And so um, the first lab that I joined didn't wasn't able to fund me. And so I think that in the very beginning, it was hard for me to find, you know, 
an advisor that would still have the same, you know, fervor for the type of work that I want to do. I want to do work that was impactful, right? And so when I went around to advisor after advisor after advisor, I told them, I want to use AI to build robots for disaster relief for marginalized communities. I want to incorporate the human experience. I want VR to be a part of this. I want to make sure the models represent. I was seeing all this crazy stuff that I really thought like I could do in one year. And all these professors were like, you know, that's great, but like, that's not really what interests me. And so I think that even when you don't face overt racism, when you have different values from people based on your lived experiences, it's going to be hard to find a match. And so I, you know, spent two years in a lab that really wasn't a match, but I kind of was, you know, okay, I'll, 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 you know, push aside my desires so that I could do this work. And it just didn't work. I I was miserable. And at the end of the day, I kind of went to my advisor and I was like, look, I don't really feel like this research is, you know, applicable or like not really applicable, but I don't think it speaks to me. And I think that might be kind of like a naive and selfish position, but I really wanted that research to be impactful and, you know, deeply important to myself. And so, you know, he was really honest and just said, look, if that's what you want to do, you got to go somewhere else. And I made the decision to go somewhere else. And I think that's my third year was when I found the lab that I'm in. And it was truly a blessing. It was an advisor who has no issues with funding, who 100% see this is the value in the projects that I'm doing. And quite frankly, he's not really an expert in the kind of work that I'm doing. He is obviously tangentially related as most technologists are, but it was a professor in the aero astro department and I'm a computer scientist. But to be able to find an advisor who listens to your ideas and says, that's amazing. Let's build it. And it, it, you know, who you are and you're infusing that, the things that matter to you into it. I love that. Like that was kind of the first time in my third year where I had that, you know, support. And so um, I think like on the flip side of the challenges, the opportunities that come when you're supported by, you know, famous, amazing, wildly intelligent professors, that those are crazy to be able to go to international conferences. I'm actually hopping on a flight tomorrow night to London to present some of my research at the world's greatest robotics conference for a full week. And it's about to be one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And that That's would have amazing. never happened if I wasn't able to like join this lab and do this research and write these papers that seem so difficult and dense and academic, but really there's a whole community of people around the world who are so excited to hear about that work and then go party afterwards, right? Like, it's <laughs> such an amazing, amazing experience and opportunity. Oh my gosh, Afuego, I love this. You know, it's so important that we have our mentors, our champions, our ambassadors, our advisors to really help us to navigate, right? Because it's hard and it's hard to acknowledge when something's not working and say, I need to do something different. And I love this, you representing and going to London and having this voice and then being able to have fun in the end. And as you think about this and kind of how you've evolved into that third year, your plans for Parfait and what you've been able to do kind of in between what is the defining moment of your career so far? Yeah, I think it was actually 2020, 2019 was when Parfait started. And that was actually when I was in my transitional period with research. And I think it was November 2019, December 2020, where I settled into that new lab. I was talking with my sister about... um you know, creating this, this project. And I found, you know, a cohesion in the research. And I think that is something that a lot of people don't have. I 
realize my philosophy on AI. And I think that, um, you know, not everybody has a philosophy on AI, but as an AI researcher, I definitely have philosophy and I believe AI doesn't actually work, right? And that, that's a loaded statement, but AI is, is a system that learns from your data. And I really believe that if we don't have data that represents us, you know, humans have to be in the loop. And I think that was really the, the defining moment for me was seeing that parfait, like we could build this business, but we had to be a part of the technology. There was no getting around that. And I, I really feel like that was the defining moment for my career because it has informed every single application that I've done moving forward. Developing machine learning models that actually see humans instead of just seeing the environment and replacing humans, that is what I think is the future of artificial intelligence. I think a lot of us, struggle and worry in the AI community about AI bias, AI taking over the world, AI algorithms learning from nefarious characters. But when we incorporate this human aspect, we realize that, you know, it's it's up to us. We have to be good stewards of artificial intelligence for us to use it properly. And that has truly changed my entire outlook and how I move when it comes to building products. Now, I, I, I look at the customer first. I, I always want to prioritize them. For Parfait, we offer adjustments. The AI algorithm works the majority of the time, but I always have, I want a human to review every single annotation. I want to make sure that nobody slips through the cracks because that is so important to us. If one person doesn't have the experience that they you know want from this product, then the product doesn't work. And so I think that when we go back to the ideas of building for community and building for the margins, combining that human aspect into the AI really addresses those problems. And I think that, you know, starting to build this company really made me see that in a way that I didn't before. And it actually completely changed the trajectory of my research. I mean, it is so fascinating because so many people are AI, it's going to overtake the jobs. It's going to do this. And like your philosophy on it is really powerful. And how do we work together with the technology and with the human race? Because we are here and there are, the data can only do so much without the tactical (laughs) implications that humans can kind of solve for and figure out, which is so interesting because that's what you're doing. And so I love this notion of kind of working through it and the human aspect of what's going to make this so unique. And I do want to talk about that unique element of parfait that is the technology. And we've had so many conversations, myself with your co-founders, and really talking about the fundamental sob that parfait has created for all of us. I love my parfait. It has changed my entire relationship with wigs. And so much of it was predicated by the simple process that is used to actually do the customization. So can you talk about how you actually got to, it's going to take less than five minutes, everybody, I promise it is so fast, but the ability to make it so seamless, that is just so game changing to be able to get your measurements so quickly. So talk about that element of it, because I truly believe that's what's changing the way that let's just say civilians can enter the market with wigs. Yeah. I mean, we thought about so many things and I always go back. It was really focused on the customer, on the community, what their capabilities were. And so um, we really thought, okay, what are people, where are people searching for wigs? They're going on the internet, they're going on Instagram, they're going on YouTube, they're on their phones, you know? So we had to make something that you could use on your phone. Um, 
then you get into the whole personal aspect that we could ask them to get a measuring tape and measure themselves and give maybe a video tutorial on how to do that. But you're gonna, are you really going to expect everybody to have a soft measuring tape? No, I probably don't even have one, except I obviously have one now because of Parfait. But in the past, I would have never had one of those that's lying around my house. So keeping those things in mind, how do you build technology that is accurate when you're limited to a very grainy cell phone image? And so I think that's what really drove our technology. We wanted to be low cost that, you know, customers didn't have to get a very expensive phone for the algorithm to work as well as it would on a more expensive phone. Because, you know, iPhone cameras, they have different sensors, they have depth sensors, LiDAR sensors that allow you to see more features on the human. And so that was kind of our grounding, you know, center focus was, let's make something that even the lowest income person can use. And it's still that five minute seamless experience. And so then, you know, getting past the actual algorithms and hardware, what is the actual experience of taking a picture? You know, so if you've seen our app, we have a little credit card that you put on the front of your head and that helps us, you know, get a real world marker of your sizing, right? And so we, you know, that credit card wasn't always a credit card. At first we had these little, you know, printed QR code type cards that we made ourselves and, you know, accessibility again became an issue that how are we going to get people, these things in people's hands? And so really thinking, what does every Everybody have. Everybody has a cell phone. Everybody has a credit card. So let's build a camera taking app that uses a cell phone and a credit card to extract all of these measurements. And from there, it was just build an app that takes pictures with a cell phone or even just take pictures with your cell phone camera with the credit card on top. And we collected hundreds and hundreds of images and built that initial data set. And knowing, combining that knowledge with the lace tint and the, the circumference measurements and the other measurements that are used to make wigs, that was our data set. And that was, you know, the imagery that we took with the hardware that we had. And then we built an algorithm. And so it, it sounds so simple, but I think the real, you know, linchpin in this whole operation was knowing that the experience of the person is going to be different for everybody. Everybody's going to be in different lighting. Everybody's going to have, you know, a different quality camera, like really focusing in on how do you make it ubiquitous, even though, you know, the machine learning algorithms are facial recognition algorithms are not trained on, you know, majority of black people. They're not trained on people who are using very low quality phones or in poor lighting. It's really nice data sets. And so that was probably the biggest hurdle that we had to jump over. But Keeping that in mind from day one allowed us to get over those hurdles of not having it work for everybody in all of their different scenarios. It is just so I love I feel like I'm in story time. I'm like all up in it. I'm like, I just I love the thoughtfulness and I love how you've thought of all the different pieces and the different scenarios. And I know for me, even doing it, it was like, oh, of course, I have a credit card, I have a phone, I can do this, I can and the output of that, it seems so simple, but I love hearing you talk about the complexity of it because you're right. It goes back to what you said about everybody having a different lived experience. And so when you bring people together with a different lived experience, there is bound to be something that doesn't quite mesh. And that doesn't mean it can't mesh like what would happen with your second advisor, but it is something that we have to take into consideration. And so the balancing act of that to then get to the output, I absolutely love it. And it is so smart and it's changed the game in so many different ways that we don't even know yet, but I'm really excited as we start to see what else you all are going to develop because there is this intersection of AI, beauty, and technology that you guys are really 
like smashing through and it's going to be so exciting. And so when you think about kind of your partners and you think about the inspiration that drives you, what are you excited about along your journey that's coming up? Yeah, I mean, we are super excited to, you know, democratize this technology and allow other salons, other partners to utilize technology and have us make wigs. I think that um, we're this online company that lives really on the internet and social media space, but I am so excited for the possibilities of in-person experiences. When you are not limited by your own personal hardware and you're able to like actually see a robot or see a well-designed computer, a a specific experience in a beauty supply store or in a makeup store, and you walk up to that and you you see this AI and you're like, oh my gosh, let me try this five-minute experience. That is what I'm so excited for. And not just because of the sales, you know, that's going to be amazing as well, but because of the idea of that 11-year-old girl that going into the beauty supply store, seeing the AI that really relates to her experience and at that age saying, wow, how does that work? You know, that that is what I'm truly excited for is seeing Parfait being able to make a more ubiquitous experience for Black people in AI and having us be able to see AI as a common tool that we use in our everyday lives, but also then building really impactful products that solve our everyday needs. I think that that is really where Parfait is headed and we're making a lot of moves towards that. Oh my goodness. I Well, I cannot wait. I just cannot wait. And you're right that in real life experience, having experienced it and seeing you all with real customers in real life, and now thinking about the future, it, it's it's so exciting. I'm like, I'm just happy to be on the journey. And um, I do have a few things as we wrap up, but I'm just really curious. And I've been asking the guests, what is one word that you think about that embodies 2023 for you? I would say power. And I think that I've really this year decided to step into my power fully as a researcher, as a woman, as a child of God. And in every single way, I really just feel empowered to do everything. And I think Parfait has been a huge part of it, but also just my growth as an academic and going through all the trials and tribulations of building a business because it's not easy. But being in 2023 and we're still standing after the past years that we've had, I think that has really changed my perspective. And now I really you know, feel that it's mind over matter and I can truly do anything with this technology. Right? Like we talk about standing in our power, but to be able to say it and do it, and to feel supported and to feel energized, it's just, it's its a beautiful thing. It truly is. It's a gift from God. So I just appreciate you sharing. I am so excited that I can't wait for my next parfait. And as we close out the show, you talked about community. You know, I talk about community. I am a community girl through and through. So we like to always shout out other brands, products that we're excited about that you think we should check out. So is there another brand we should run, get, and try? Actually, so Anima Iris, um, a amazing handbag company, luxury handbag sourced from Africa. They, I was so excited to actually have provided wigs for their most recent campaign. It was totally spies inspired, but definitely check them out. Beautiful products, beautiful visuals, love everything about it. Oh my goodness. I know it's so beautiful and it's so amazing when we think about the cultural aspect of it. And that's really why we like to shout out. Like there's so many great products that exist. And if we can all support each other, 
that's really the economic circle that we should be living in. And that's the economic impact that we can create. So um, I love this. I, I just, I love it. Thank you for sharing. I'm excited for what's to come. I'm excited for how this technology is really going to solve our needs. Also open our eyes to a new way of thinking about servicing our needs and leveraging these big data points and data sets and algorithms. So thank you for distilling it and making making it easy for us to follow the PhD from MIT as you talk about all the things you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, it's just wonderful to hear that it's accessible. You know, it's not hard to understand and we can all really learn and grow from it. And every week I share an influencer I'm checking out. And this week, make sure to follow Anima Iris. Thank you so much for that, Afuego. Anima Iris are colorful leather handbags for the vibrant. They're handmade in Africa with leathers from Italy. Make sure that you check out Anima Iris. And as always, I want to leave you with one thing from today's guest. And that is, how are you going to change the world with your ideas, your passion, and your community? Afuego talked about changing the world with big tech and wanting to be a big deal. So I'll leave you with, how are you going to change the world with your big idea, with your passion, and leaning on community? And with that, Follow, rate, and subscribe to Business of the Beat on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You don't want to miss an episode, and we love to hear from you. Leave a five-star rating and a review. Until next week. Business of the Beat is hosted by Kendra Bracken-Ferguson, assistant producer Jenny Salk, executive producer Kendra Bracken-Ferguson, edited by Fish Mar Creative, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the Business of the Beat podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. And on IG at Business of the Beat. Business of the Beat is a mean old line media production. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.